Well, read casually, <clears throat> what you may not realize about the question that Peter asked Jesus in today's gospel reading, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? As many as seven times? Is that Peter was being remarkably generous. Because religious leaders in that day had debated this exact question and concluded that you should forgive someone up to three times when they sin against you. Because, I mean, you don't want to be an enabler. Uh, and so Peter's question actually seemed to be pushing the outer limits of generosity. But Jesus' answer sets an at best incredibly and at worst impossibly high and costly standard of forgiveness. Not seven times, Peter. Seventy-seven times. Kind of like if you're counting, you're not really forgiving. However generous you think you might be. And then he illustrates it with a story wherein forgiveness has no limit, confronting and challenging every one of us. Because we're, we're all caught in the same fight from garden variety circumstances where someone has offended us and we're a little peeved to more extreme situations, acts of abuse or meanness or injustice or betrayal that maybe years later still cause us to reel emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, or even physiologically. And Jesus right here offers an opportunity, a possibility to begin moving forward, to begin healing. He tells a story, a parable about his favorite subject, the kingdom of the heavens. This is what the kingdom of the heavens is like, he begins. There was this king. Jesus spoke more about the kingdom of the heavens than any other subject. And his idea is that even as we inhabit the kingdoms or the cultures of this world, there's another kingdom, a, a, a counterculture that is entirely accessible to us. Parables subvert our unconscious acceptance of the cultural narratives of our day and thereby expose their illusions or maybe delusions is a better word. They're not formulas or lo logical syllogisms. They're provocative and confrontation and visceral. How many times have you heard somebody talk on a podcast or talk radio that we're talking about politics or culture and they talk about forgiveness? It's, it's anger that's really valued these days. So this is, this is really not in our cultural wheelhouse, is it? I mean, parables always make us squirm if we're truly hearing them. In fact, if they fit into our business as usual world, they haven't served their purpose at all. The parables Jesus told are meant to transform rather than to simply inform. I mean, information is easy. Transformation is painful. This parable is told in three scenes, three looks at forgiveness from the perspective of the kingdom of the heavens. 
Executive coach and mentor Bob Beal insists that until you answer the why question, the cost is always too high. I, I heard him say this for the first time in 1983, my first year in ministry when he was doing some consulting with the church where I worked. And this aphorism has, has stuck with me since, though candidly, I'm not always good at carefully answering the why question before or even early in a process or program. Doing so would likely have saved a lot of wasted effort and not a small amount of frustration over the ensuing 40 years, but this is not so with Jesus. Because the very first scene of this parable reveals the why or the root of forgiveness. Root, of course, in Latin is where we get the English word radical, and this truly is. There's a king that's decided to settle accounts with everyone who owes him money, and early on, a man is brought in who owes him 10,000 talents. A talent was one of the highest forms of currency in the ancient Roman world, and 10,000 was the highest Roman numeral. So this is a mind-bogglingly large sum. Even one talent would be a small fortune to an ordinary person. 10,000 talents is beyond any individual's ability to pay. Nevertheless, the servant falls on his knees and begs the king to give him more time to pay. The king takes pity on him, mercy, and cancels his debt and lets him go free. One of the metaphors the Bible uses to describe sin is debt. Because throughout our lives, in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds, and even in our motives, we accrue a kind of debt to God by falling short of his glorious design for us, his intention for us, and his standards for us. The picture scene one paints is that the debt of this man, the, 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 the debt that this man has accrued, and by extension, the debt that you and I have accrued with our king in heaven is a debt far beyond any capacity to pay, but he's the one who's come and undertaken to pay the debt himself. It's seeing as foundational that we have nothing that should commend us to God, nothing that merits our forgiveness in his sight. But God, in his pity, shows mercy, cancels the debt that we cannot pay, and sets us free. And this one notion must always be at the root of our understanding of forgiveness. This is the one notion behind the prayer of humble access. We do not presume to come to this your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies, apart from your grace, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. But you are the same Lord whose character is what? Always to have mercy. Always. Why? Because we always need it. This isn't dramatic hyperbole. It is a simple statement of fact. And it's humbling. We have nothing. That's the first scene. So in the second scene, this servant who's 
unpayable debt is unimaginably canceled by the king is set free, and now he's on a mission. Unfortunately, this mission is search and destroy. He quickly finds one of his colleagues who owes him a hundred denarii. One denarius was about what a common worker would receive for a day's wage. So a hundred denarii was a substantial amount of money for most of those listening, but probably only about a 600,000, that is 0.00006 of what the first servant owed the king. And he grabs him and he chokes him and says, pay me what you owe me. The second servant falls on his knees and utters the exact words the first servant uttered to the king, be patient with me, I'll pay you back. But he refused and had him sent off to debtor's prison, which, by the way, has debtor's prison ever made sense to anyone? I mean, you owe me money, so I'm going to put you in prison so you can't work and earn money, and I want you to pay me back. I just don't get the logic there at all. Nevertheless, he was going to make him pay every last penny. Anger and resentment just seem to boil over in him. He clearly doesn't get the connection between what had just happened and what was now happening. Jesus is leading us to see the absurdity of this, the absurdity of someone who could so easily receive canceled debt but then cannot extend it to one of his brothers. This is obviously an extreme example, grabbing him, choking him, sending him off to prison. But you and I do the same kinds of things, metaphorically speaking, don't we? Because anger and resentment are not only natural human responses, but also incredibly powerful and satisfying things when we have been wronged. And when somebody has hurt us, we we have a whole bunch of ways we can satisfy our own anger and resentment. We avoid, we shun, we give the cold shoulder, we make little passive-aggressive remarks to others about them. We become demanding and controlling with them because, well, they owe us. We belittle them to others under the guise of warning them so they don't fall prey to the same injury that we've sustained. Or maybe it's just to share, quote-unquote, the struggle we're going through. We repay the mental, we replay the mental video of what they did to us over and over and over, especially in the the small hours of the morning. And if you're like me, you might even find yourself just occasionally silently rooting for the failure of someone who's hurt you. By radical contrast, I believe what Jesus is leading us to is this forgiveness when it's rooted in what God has done for you in his forgiveness of you, allows you to cancel the debt so the other person can go free. Why in the world would he do that? Not because they deserve it, or would we do that? Not because they deserve it, but because we're doing something radical. We're going to the root, the why of forgiveness in the first scene in this parable. I myself have had a debt and have a debt far too great that I could ever pay, and God canceled that debt. Not because I deserved it or I could ever deserve it. And that empowers me and impels me to do the same. And yet, like the first servant, we miss the connection way too frequently. 
That's where the sobering third scene of this story opens, and it's the heart of this parable. So evidently, there were witnesses to these events, and when they saw what the first servant had done, they were appalled, and they ran and told the king. He was rightly incensed and immediately executed judgment. He sent him to prison where he, could be tort- where he would be tortured. And then comes Jesus at stunning point, so also. My heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. But lest we think this is a one-off, he'd said the exact same kind of thing in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses or our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us. Then following the Lord's Prayer in Matthew Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, literally the very next thing he says after the prayer is, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I can almost guarantee you, you are never going to see that on a Christian t-shirt, coffee mug, or bumper sticker because that is a harsh reality. So what are we supposed to do with this? The first thing I think is not pretend that it's not there. Because we're human, we're naturally most drawn to the parts of the Bible that are encouraging and uplifting, and yet there are realities in the scriptures that ought to sting, like like a bucket of ice water in the face that, that make us think, are you kidding me? But this idea, our genuine forgiveness of those who have harmed us, is critical to our life in God. We mustn't push it off or brush it aside. We must allow it to sink in. And there are two realities embedded in this parable that will allow us to do just that, to get below the surface and take root in our lives. The first one is this. Jesus says, so my heavenly father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Is he saying that God's grace is conditional? That God will forgive you as long as you go out and forgive everyone you have something against? No, he is not saying that. Because if he were saying that, it would contradict the central idea of the first scene of this parable. And it would contradict grace itself. This, th- that is, we have a debt we cannot pay, and God, in his kindness, before anything else, has taken pity on us and canceled that debt in Christ. It's already been canceled. It cannot be laid back on you. That's really the idea we see in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus isn't saying, Lord, forgive us only after we've gone out and forgiven everyone. Rather, he's saying there is an intimate connection here that you cannot miss. And that connection is the simple heart of this parable. The forgiven heart will be a forgiving heart. When we say, there's no way I can forgive that person, we simply fail to grasp our own forgiveness. This means our human relationships are actually, scarily, a barometer of our relationship with God. 
So when you find yourself refusing to forgive someone until they've repaid a debt to you, you are in reality saying something significant and harmful about the way you believe that God treats you. Because if we trivialize our own debt to God and the undeserved mercy he shows us in Christ, we will trivialize grace. And that will necessarily translate into how we treat our fellow debtors. We'll be more harsh and less forgiving. So we must candidly and constantly assess our own spiritual condition and allow that to frame how we see others. To become the people that God intends, the church must be a counterculture of uniquely forgiving people, a people of humility and repentance who concern themselves primarily with the planks in their own eyes than the specks rather than the specks in their neighbors. Hears of this parable must, must never, ever place themselves in the judgment seat of the king who forgives but rather always in the hot seat of the unworthy servant who is forgiven. Because the forgiven heart, the one who knows, who feels the weight of the canceled debt that they could never pay, the forgiven heart will be the forgiving heart. That's the first reality. And Jesus goes on in verses 32 through 34. Then the master called the servant in you wicked servant he said i canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as i had on you in anger his master landed him or handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all that he owed so here's the second reality the unforgiving person becomes the tortured person You, you probably have, have heard this saying before, and I, I believe it's absolutely right. It was said by, of all people, Marianne Williamson, who is a, a Democratic candidate for president right now. Um, she said, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Forgiveness, of course, means to release, to, to, to let go. Forgiveness is not denying hurt. In fact, when we minimize what has happened or gloss over it or tell ourselves that it wasn't really all that bad, we cannot really forgive. In fact, forgiveness is a possibility only when we acknowledge the debt incurred against us by another person. Forgiveness is absolutely not an excuse to endure unjust behavior, and to forgive is not necessarily to forget. In fact, there are some things we ought never to forget, lest they be repeated. Additionally, and it's surprising to me the number of people who don't understand this, forgiveness and reconciliation are not synonyms. There are a couple of key differences between these two words. First one is this. While all reconciliation requires forgiveness, not all forgiveness requires reconciliation. Sometimes conflating reconciliation and forgiveness actually hinders us from forgiving because we know it's not possible or healthy to reconcile. 
Forgiveness is always a must, and ideally, reconciliation should be the goal. However, while forgiveness is always plausible, reconciliation isn't always possible, such as in cases of abuse or other harm in which trust is seriously broken, and in cases of unrepentance. Basically, reconciliation should always be the goal in healthy relationships, but it's not always a possibility because some relationships are unhealthy. So that's the first key difference. All reconciliation requires forgiveness. Not all forgiveness requires reconciliation. The second key difference is this. One person can forgive, but it takes at least two to reconcile. With God's help, I have the power to forgive anything. That doesn't mean that I'm willing to or that it will be simple or easy. And sometimes a wrong is so wrong, so traumatic, that, that complete forgiveness and personal healing is a very long process. I've been open about the fact that I've been working regularly with a counselor since October of 2016, so about seven years now. And he's helped me a lot with forgiveness and healing, though I still have a lot of ground to cover and probably always will. One of the things I've learned is that ultimately forgiveness is a spiritual act, reliant not on the other person or people at all, but on the power of God in me to accomplish. Reconciliation is a multiple-person process. When I reconcile with another person, both of us must first ask and or offer forgiveness. But it has to go further than that. It, both people must also choose to do whatever it takes to restore that relationship. Any amendment of life that it will require. One person can be completely willing, but if the other person isn't willing, reconciliation isn't possible. This means that we can forgive someone for damaging our relationship, but the vulnerability and trust necessary to resume it is not there. That might happen later, but for now, we forgive and leave it at that. Or we might forgive and be ready to reconcile, but the other person no longer desires our relationship. I've experienced both, and they're both painful. By the way, if you need someone's forgiveness, which I have already <laughs> needed twice today, do not apologize. Confess. Why do I say that? Because uh, apology is a word that comes from two Greek words that mean with words. It means you're explaining away what you did. <coughs> Confession is to say the same thing as, I was wrong. I was angry. And I need your forgiveness. Is a confession. That's parenthetical. But to forgive is to make a conscious choice to release a person that's wounded us from the sentence of our judgment, however justified that judgment may be. 
to leave behind our desires for retribution, however fair punishment may be. There may be, there may come natural and necessary consequences for the offender, and the behavior remains condemned, but the offender is released from its effects as far as the forgiver is concerned. And here's something stunning. Forgiveness means the original wound's power to hold you trapped is also broken. Fuller Fuller Seminary professor Lewis Smeads said this beautifully. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that prisoner was you. So let this parable sting. Because the lesson from Jesus here is that if you're not a forgiving person, the simple reality is that you're going to be a tortured person. For God's sake, don't let the fact that you've been injured by someone keep you in chains. Do not drink poison and wait around for someone else to die. Instead, root your forgiveness in the king's forgiveness of you, his forgiveness of your debt that was far too great for you to pay. And allow that to renew your own mind as the gospel begins to show you the translation of your own forgiveness into the forgiveness you extend to others. And it will be hard. And it will hurt. But you'll discover, I think, in your own heart a freedom that you've never known or maybe haven't known for a long time. In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.